And the American dream as it was concocted, what's really interesting is if you look in the 1930s when the idea of the American dream was first born, and I talk about this in my first book, um, was not about cars and houses. It was actually about equal opportunity. Um, the first time you hear mention of the American dream, it is about achieving equal opportunity regardless of a person's status, race, or gender. Really, really radical idea going back to the 1930s. Vishan Chakrabati is the founder and creative director of Practice for Architecture and Urbanism and recently accepted the position as the Dean of the William W. Worcester College of Environmental Design at the University of California, Berkeley. From 2012 to 2015, Vishan was a principal at Shop Architects. Prior to that, he served under Mayor Bloomberg as the Director of City Planning in a post 9-11 New York. In this appointed position, he collaborated on several development projects that evolved the face of New York's public spaces. The now-realized regenerative effort of the High Line, the rebuilding of the East River waterfront, and the reincorporation of the street grid at the World Trade Center site are among them. Vishan has made some thoughtful arguments against banal, processed urban design being detrimental to our ability to thrive as human beings. In his TED Talk, he draws on imagery from the globe's most iconic cities, contrasting them with the cold anonymity of many modern ones. An effort that can be seen in PAU's versatile mixed-use village in Ulaanbaatar, Mongolia, which interprets the region's nomadic heritage through innovative, flexible design that can be repeated and adapted to local communities, climates, and construction methods elsewhere. His book, however, A Country of Cities, A Manifesto for an Urban America, is what embodies the heart of his work. He makes the case that well-designed cities are the key to solving the United States' great national challenges by reimagining them to hold more inclusive, prosperous, and egalitarian societies. Resite's founder, Martin Berry, joins Vishan in a conversation about the future of our cities, addressing some of the inevitable evolutions, specifically around mobility, that will come with the rising populations and urban environments with the same ethos. Okay. Hi, everybody. So we've got a lot of questions for Vishan. And Vishan, thanks for joining us. Nice to be here. Thanks. Sure. So we're going to weave in between a bunch of things because uh, Vishan's interest and his career are are diverse. And maybe I'll just start really briefly and and simply by asking you, Vishan, how are you doing? What's up? Uh, I think I'm doing I'm doing as well as can be expected. I mean, I think we're all struggling through this pandemic. I'm one of the lucky ones. I mean, I have a job and I have, you know, my family nearby. I really worry about all the people who have extraordinary amounts of stress and live in small apartments with small families and are losing work. I, I bartended my way through a lot of my grad school education and I kind of know what restaurant life is like and I think it's just really hard a lot of people right now so I'm one of the lucky ones thanks yeah that's that's good to hear but I I, you started um in in Berkeley last summer in July is that right and and so you've had kind of one or a couple semesters under your belt before we we were dealt with COVID so maybe you can just start telling us a little bit about what that's like you made a big move from from New York to California 
Um, you've you have a relatively new practice and, and now you're dealing with a, a, a ton of disruption with COVID. There's been racial riots. Um, there's, there's been historic wildfires in California and now you're sort of starting in a, in a new life. It must be uh, challenging. And, and so maybe tell us a little bit about what's happening at Berkeley these days. Yeah, I appreciate you asking. I mean, it's been a hell of a year. 2020 is going to really go be legendary, I think. I mean, um, yeah, you know, I, I've been teaching I've been teaching at Columbia for about 10 years. I've lived in New York for about 27 and um, uh, started my practice about five years ago. Actually, we just celebrated our five-year anniversary and um, moved here this summer with my family to the Bay Area and was immediately, you know, obviously the pandemic was well underway. Berkeley went to remote instruction last spring. We're in remote instruction now. Um, and then immediately got immersed in what I would call Johnny Cash's ring of fire in terms of the Bay Area, like where we are in Berkeley, uh, is kind of the donut hole of a bunch of fires that have sprouted all around us. We were actually evacuated from a fire a few weeks ago up in Napa, and um, uh, we're under a red flag warning as we speak, meaning the, the Berkeley-Oakland Hills uh, are, uh, are under severe fire watch through the course of this weekend. And so, you know, I try to think about this stuff not in terms of how it impacts me personally, but more, you know, what does this mean for the world? What does it mean for our disciplines? How did we get here? How do we get out of this mess we've created? Um, you know, and how can, you know, I, I run a college called the College of Environmental Design. It was named that college very purposefully in 1959 by William Worcester and, and Catherine Bauer Worcester as this idea that it wasn't just about architecture and planning and landscape, but how those disciplines uh, could, in an interdisciplinary way, attack issues of climate change and social injustice. And that was in 1959 they were thinking about that, which is really extraordinary. So, you know, I, I really try to look at everything that we've gone through, through the lens of, you know, how are the professions I represent in the world relevant to the crises we have before us in terms of both uh, climate change, racial reckoning, you know, and, and I think they are, I, I think the disciplines are very relevant to those issues as we kind of rethink human habitation coming out of this mess. So that's what I'm very focused on actually. Another prominent discussion that has taken place this year, and even more so in the wake of the first COVID lockdown, was the return of streets to pedestrian use. New York was one of the first cities to designate streets as temporary public space to help residents better cope with social distancing. Streets turned into recreational spaces, restaurants spilled out onto streets as streeteries, and the idea of streets as public space meant for social interactions seemed to enter our collective consciousness all at once. A recently published New York Times opinion piece titled, I've seen a future without cars and it's amazing, 
written by Farhad Manju, featured PAU's proposed visualizations of what a car-free Manhattan could look like, making that idea materialize in a way that was more tangible than before. Vishan sees car dependency as incredibly undemocratic and deeply inequitable, aside from the number of deaths that lay at the hands of automobile accidents and how truly detrimental to the environment they are. His plan to reimagine the city without them tackles one of the lesser discussed implications, their poor use of physical space per person as a profound waste of land, especially in populated cities. Vishan and Martin dive into how our car-centric culture influences our city's design, the realities of driverless cars as a solution, and what the inevitable evolutions of mobility might look like. Yeah, those are big questions for um, academia and practice, I think. And those of us um, I used to be in practice and, and those that are still in practice, I think, um, yeah, there's a lot of lessons to be learned, I think, in this time. And I think probably huge opportunities. Um, I think one of them you've commented on recently, which is the carless city and what the future of the, uh, the carless city might look like. I think this is one of the things that... that we started thinking about early as urbanists um, in this pandemic, particularly in cities like New York, uh, Manhattan, where I'm from, when we saw streets open up for the first time in our, in our lives. Um, and we, you know, you could almost uh, sense the, the fresh air, even though I haven't been back in New York since February, I could, you know, the, the space and the air, the feeling was kind of palpable that, that wow, this is like a new city. Um, Tell us a little bit about, about this and, and your comments in the article um, with Farad Manju recently were kind of stirring. I think a lot of people were, um, uh, they're provocative. They're, I think, interesting for a lot of us that thought about how to change New York City streets um, for a long time, and certainly as you did underneath Mayor Bloomberg. So what's this like? Is this going to be a permanent change? Uh, what, what needs to happen for cities like New York to transition to more carless cities? Um, and, and what are the impacts? I mean, obviously the climate change impacts are obvious, um, but maybe there's others that we're not thinking about yet. Well, yeah. I mean, first of all, I, I think the proposal, and thank you for looking at it. I think Farhad did an, an amazing, amazing job with it. And I'm so grateful for that. Um, you know, I think what we proposed is both radical and inevitable. Um, I think over the course of the next decade or two, you're going to start seeing major cities. And like people really need to hear those words, major cities. I'm not talking about everywhere. I understand there's lots of places that need cars, you know, to get around. Um, but I think within the heart of major cities, we're going to see uh, uh, them eliminating private cars. Uh, the reason I think that's inevitable is, well, climate is obviously one of the reasons, but also, you know, we are steadily moving towards a world of 10 billion people by the year 2100. And um, that's going to probably reach a steady state of about 10 billion people. You know, by 2050, 70% of the world's population will live in cities. And so, 
our existing cities, because I don't think this is just about like building all these new cities from scratch. We'll see some of that, but most of it is about how our existing cities take on this influx of population. And um, we just don't have the room for people to move around in these individual tin cans. And I don't care whether they're, you know, electric cars or autonomous cars. As far as I'm concerned, that's all a distraction. The real issue is a spatial issue, which is why we as designers need to get in the mix in this conversation. It's just extraordinarily inefficient for one human being to be traveling around in this gargantuan, you know, couple of ton machine through the streets of our cities. And what we really tried to illustrate in that article is that if you took away the private car, which means that, you know, you'd still have taxis, you'd still have freight delivery, you'd still have buses. Uh, buses, I think, are really critical because I think a lot of people think of buses as these incredibly sort of archaic, slow-moving ways of getting around cities. But the reason they move so slowly is because they're constantly trying to navigate this field of private vehicles. And then when you take private vehicles away, buses and sort of smaller minibuses, electric minibuses can move lots of people around. It's rubber tire technology, it's flexible. So as different parts of the cities, of cities grow and change, the bus routes can change. And um, I, I just think there's a huge opportunity for us to move around our cities in a much easier way. And so when you say, well, why is this about more than climate change? Well, first of all, the climate impacts are just enormous. You're talking about billions of people around the world in our major cities. And so just the heat island effects, the, the, the air pollution, and obviously the carbon emissions, you know, that come from all those private cars going away would be enormously impactful. But then beyond that, there's a huge quality of life issue. So people often ask me about like, what's the future of cities post COVID? And I believe in cities and I worked for Mayor Bloomberg after 9-11 and everyone thought cities were going to die then and like they bounced back with a vengeance and I think they're going to bounce back from this with a vengeance. But we do have a, a competitive situation in my mind that is starkly drawn between remote work and horrible commutes, meaning that for like the people who live and work in the city, they're all gonna go back to their office space because they tend to be in industries, like I think of my office, most of my employees live in New York City. We're gonna come back, we need to meet face-to-face -face models, drawings, the things that architects do, right? But a lot of people who work in cities are paralegals or insurance brokers, and they have two hour long commutes that are really, really horrendous. And those people have a strong vested interest in going to their employer and saying, you know, I'll work from home. I'll stay in the area so I can come in for the occasional meeting. But I, I really don't want that horrible commute every day. And so when you pull all the private cars out of a central business district, what we were able to illustrate is it's not just about Manhattan, but it dramatically improves commute times for the entire region. And so there's a, an enormous quality of life issue for all of those kinds of people who are coming back and forth on express buses and things like that. 
And then there's the quality of life issues on the ground. Like if, you know, in New York City, we converted, we recently converted 14th Street into a bus bikeway. And yeah, that was great for transportation. But what I don't think we talked about enough during that conversion is what it meant for the street to be quieter, for it to feel less polluted, for there to be this kind of ballet of people jaywalking freely across the street because they didn't have to worry about getting run down by uh, a private car. And so there's all of these things that are really joyful. You know, how we deal with trash in big cities. Can we provide better homeless services when we pick up all of this space that's used by these tin cans? And so I just think that as more and more people illustrate that, you know, just this morning I saw another architecture firm was doing this for a different part of New York City for a specific project. I think people will start to get more and more of this imagery and say, that that's not eating your spinach. That's actually dessert. It's great. That's, that's the way I want to live. And you're going to see, I think, this sea change happen around how people want to think about and use our streets. This also will dramatically affect issues of equity, race, and affordability because a lot of communities of color are often in places that have horrible commutes. Um, th there's this way in which what we're talking about would flatten the access to the city in a way that is very hierarchical and very um, elite right now uh, because private cars driving into cities is fundamentally an elite idea. And so I just think this is inevitable as we think about a more ecological and equitable world, you know, fueled by cities where most people live. And I might challenge you on this a little bit. While I fundamentally agree with everything you say, I'm not sure that every listener will. Um, and one of the things you said is, is that cars are fundamentally a, um, at their core and, and kind of elitist principle or mechanism. Um, for travel, but actually, like even as noted in the article by Farhad, uh, cars are a status symbol, and and where we live in in Central Europe, and even as you go further east in Europe, um, a car is what you buy when you made it. You know, you, you drive a BMW because you got a big job, and and that wasn't something that was always available to every society. So, I think um, making making people believe that it's better to kind of like uh, use a shared car or use a, a taxi or share taxi or something harder to do though. How, how do you do that? Well, I mean, I, I always welcome disagreement, but you're actually getting to the crux of something that I think is really important, which is you can talk about these things in terms of data, in terms of um, climate science, uh, and what people should do. But you have to, if you only do that, you're missing one of the biggest components, which is the cultural component, which I think is really what you're asking about. Because that's what, that's what a status symbol is, right? It's a cultural artifact. And um, you then have to say, well, why is that the status symbol? Why is owning that BMW the and, and by the way, if you talk to BMW or Ford or any of these big auto manufacturers, they also see this as an inevitability. They're all turning into mobility technology companies, not private vehicle companies. Um, but um, 
you know, there's two aspects about this. One is why is that car ownership a symbol of status? That is something that is almost purely an American phenomenon that then got spread worldwide. And I saw it happen in India and I've seen it in Brazil and Saudi Arabia and China. Uh, a little, interestingly, a bit less so in a lot of um, the East Asian tiger countries. You see, you don't see that same phenomena play out in Korea, in Japan, in Vietnam in the same way. Um, because obviously more land scarce countries don't think quite the same way about these issues, right? Because for them, car ownership tends to equate to traffic and congestion and expense in a way that it doesn't if you live in the middle of a vast expanse like, you know, the United States or Canada. And, and so what, what I think has to change, you know, what we're talking about is that status symbol in my mind is, is completely driven by the American dream. And the American dream, as it was concocted, what's really interesting is if you look in the 1930s when the idea of the American dream was first born, and I talk about this in my first book, um, was not about cars and houses. It was actually about equal opportunity. Um, the first time you hear mention of the American dream, it is about achieving equal opportunity regardless of a person's status, race, or gender. Really, really radical idea going back to the 1930s. By the time we get into the post-war era, when you know the war machine of the United States is sort of corporatized, um, and you know there's a famous cartel that was formed to get rid of mass transit, and the advertising machine that you see depicted in Mad Men goes into full force. And this idea that success is equated with the owning of stuff is a dramatic cultural shift that happens after World War II. And then with, I think, technology and broadband in the 1990s and the opening up of economies and neoliberalism spreading as an ideal, as a kind of ideology, you know, and, and, and Deng Xiaoping saying that it's, you know, to be rich is glorious, suddenly you see suddenly the entire world gravitate towards that idea that status is about stuff. And the fundamental challenge that presents, of course, is that in terms of climate, you know, we've had 2 billion people enter the middle class in the last two decades in this world. And if billions of people around the world start living the way wealthy Westerners live with big cars and big houses, we're screwed. The, the planet cannot withstand the resource demand of billions of people around the world living that way. And I see it, one of the scariest experiences I ever had was I took a low flying flight around Riyadh, the deserts around, around Riyadh, which look just like Phoenix, you know, these irrigated deserts that are all built around vehicular infrastructure. And we can't sustain that. 10 billion people cannot live on the planet this way. And so really younger generations have to rethink this status idea. And that it's actually, you know, you think about the way the water bottle, that, that, that um, the reusable water bottle became a different form of status. Like, oh, you're using a plastic bottle? 
the way in which like we started thinking about cigarettes as like becoming almost this social stigma. I think in the future we might start seeing cars as social stigma. The people will start being embarrassed by the fact that they drive places. Um, and, and so I, I just think that that's a huge cultural shift that I start to see young people leading. Yeah, I think you're... That's my hope anyway. No, I think you no. Well, all of your arguments are, are backed by the data. Um, like the, the precipitous drop in the amount of Gen Zers that are getting their license is scaring the hell out of Ford and GM and all these companies, which is why, as you said, they're becoming mobility companies and even companies like BMW is getting into housing. Um, so I think this is definitely a, tr- a trend. I think the technology solves some of the issues. Um, uh, that you're talking about, but then it comes, to, it gets to the question of who's going to own cars in the future. Um, are cars going to be owned like by cities? Is, are the cities going to be having fleets of driverless vehicles? And um, I think you've got something to say about driverless vehicles because some of us are frustrated by how long it's taking to get this kind of perfect future um, where the car drops me off and just disappears into the darkness and comes back when I need it. So like, uh, how does this help or, or hurt the, the argumentation? To I'm not at all um, Pollyannish about driver, driverless vehicles. First of all, I've looked at the technology fairly closely, and the problem with it is it only works in environments where every car is a driverless vehicle. It works fabulously then. If you can set up a Disneyland type of environment where every single car is a driverless vehicle, it works fabulously. As soon as it has to, I, I love that, you know, Silicon Valley calls regular cars legacy vehicles now. So the idea that like a driverless vehicle has to interact with a legacy vehicle is becomes deeply problematic. And in fact, this could very quickly turn into our next version of the gated community where there are certain kind of elite communities that only have driverless cars. Um, the other thing well, is that well, you, this way. what's that? Yeah, sure. I mean, that's a classic example. And, and a lot of the tech companies are, 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 are toying with this idea. And I've seen drawings where, you know, you'll see a city drawn as a sort of driverless boundary. And then ringing that boundary is like a series of parking garages where you park your legacy vehicle and transfer to a driverless car. And it's absolutely horrifying. It's horrifying. Um, and um, the other thing about it is, you know, driving in the United States is the largest employer of high school educated men. You know, if you want to create a civil war, right, and you think things are bad now, when, when you dis place millions of people and and you know when the only answer from elites is well you should get retrained you shouldn't be a driver i i just think that people are not thoughtful when they talk about these utopian ideas um and the the enormous social impact that they may have um and so I, I just, not to mention, there's all sorts of studies that say the driverless cars could, could dramatically increase traffic in cities 
Um, and and so I just I, I just think we need to be super super cautious about all of this stuff because see in my mind going back to where we started because I, I for, for years taught a class called theory of city form and it kind of starts with how cities formed around grids of streets and plazas and so forth and so streets are at you know, streets are a, a, a many thousands year old invention. The first sidewalks are like 2000 years old. And so that infrastructure of streets and sidewalks started well before the invention of the internal combustion engine. And it was really about the streets being a social condenser um, and, and being a place for sort of serendipitous exchange and, and for social value. And when, when, the, the internal combustion engine was invented, it completely changed our worldview around the idea that streets weren't for people, that streets were for cars. And which is why what we proposed in the New York Times looks so radical, even though it's a kind of back to the future idea. And so I, I just think that we have to be super careful about technological panaceas uh, because the car was presented as precisely that kind of silver bullet. And I, I just think silver bullets can be a lot more dangerous than we think they are. Yeah, no, I would agree with uh, all of this. And I think the you know, I get asked uh, a lot about the future of the city and my answer is always kind of, um, disappointing i think for people because i say the future of the city looks a lot like the past and people don't really understand that but basically you've illustrated it uh, in your proposal it means that there's a lot more walkability we're living in the sort of 15 minutes uh, this 15 minute city we're able to kind of live work and play in the same neighborhoods this is what i think um i'm 40 but i think my generation and, and below and definitely younger people they don't want to spend time in the car. So I think like, I do believe that like time is on our side in this argument. And I think in, in the next two decades, I mean, I have an 18 year old, I have an 18 year old and he doesn't have a driver's license. He has no interest in getting a driver's license. None of his friends have any interest in getting a driver's license. Um, and and sh people say, well, sure. That's because they're young and wait till they have kids. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not sure that's true. I sold my car like 15 years ago and I never look back. You know, I, I, we rent a car occasionally and we love that. You know, we can change cars every couple months for the weekend. Yeah. You know, that's one of the ironic parts about like my existence. I actually love cars. I just don't drive them in cities. I've driven across, I've driven across the United States three times. And I just think when you're talking about these larger landscapes, especially rural landscapes, Cars are extraordinary, and I do think we need, obviously, you know, cleaner cars, right? And, like, that sense of open road and freedom. I mean, you, you, you asked a question a while back, which is, do you imagine all cars will be owned by municipalities? And this is, this is going to turn into a political issue akin to guns, because it's going to turn into kind of a, um, a, 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 a rights and freedom argument, the freedom of movement, the freedom to go where I want to go. And now I've got between government and big tech kind of big brother saying what car I can drive and where I can go. And, you know, that's going to turn into a huge political fight.
And I've already seen it. I've already seen it in the United States. There's, there's an enormous correlation between Trump voters, gun ownership, and the ownership of very, very large cars. Uh, because it's, they're all expressions of freedom uh, as they see it. And so I think we need to be careful because I do think in a big city that most cities should be fleet, most cars should be fleet vehicles, shared, electric, solar, you know, all of that good stuff. But, you know, do I want my ability to go drive a 911 on a backcountry road? Yeah, I do. Um, and I, I think we need to, you know, I, I think we need to understand and balance this, this conversation with that because without it, we're losing a huge segment of the population that I think would otherwise be on our side. Yeah. I, 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 the political argument is going to be, it's going to be tough and it's going to take a long time, but I think the natural course of um, the consumer is kind of leading us in that direction and places to look, I think are like Singapore, you know, like if you live in Singapore, it's tremendously expensive to own a car. So it does become sort of an elitist symbol or status symbol. Um, but on the other hand, I think the city's like, uh, has done a good job in controlling the, the amount of car ownership. So you get there by sort of unfortunately taxing it and, and making it kind of prohibitively expensive for everyone to have one. But I think that's generally the way it's going to, going to go. Um, the, the way in which I think it makes it easier to get there and to get to a proposal like you have is in cities like New York, which have an unbelievably efficient public transit system and robust one. Of course, as New Yorkers, we all know it needs to be better, but it's robust. Um, And I think the pandemic has shown that like um, public transportation is also uh, not everyone's preferred route of transportation. And I think like dense cities have gotten a bad rap uh, and so has public transit. Do you think that's a long-term issue or do you think people are going to sort of say, okay, like, you know, I definitely don't want to drive two hours from Suffolk County um, to, to Manhattan this week for work. So I'll hop on the Long Island Railroad again. Is this going to be um, a long-term problem or, or are we going to see um, people driving just because they're scared? I don't think it's going to be a long-term problem. I don't think it's going to be a long-term problem because people aren't going to have a lot of choices. Um, you know, there's 83 lanes of traffic that come into Manhattan and there's not going to be 84 anytime soon. And so people need to get to their jobs and most people are going to have to return to their jobs. You know, there's still headquarters buildings being built in New York city right now. I just, you know, so I, I, I think that all of that will return, but the longer term problem is that first of all, the pandemic is creating a huge budgetary problem for mass transit systems. Right, and so we, we just, mass transit systems are going bankrupt right now. And unless there's federal bailouts, we're gonna have huge problems with them. On top of which most mass transit systems, especially in the United States, much less so in Europe, are archaic. You know, they were built a hundred years plus ago and they, um, they simply, they're not in a state of good repair. They haven't extended out to places where people live as cities have grown. And, and I think that's the much longer term issue is that for people to use mass transit, it's again, it's a quality of life thing. And, and that's why I place a lot of my faith in the future of buses, uh, especially smaller buses. You know, in India, they use a lot of minibuses that are, that are gasoline driven, but they're, you know, they're 20 passenger buses. You can only 
sit in a lot of them. And, um, and you know, those provide great point-to-point -point last mile solutions in relatively cheap technology. And if you can then turn those into, uh, you know, electric, zero emission um, uh, vehicles, I think you can do a lot with that. I think it's a very adaptable, very flexible uh, technology that can be very, very fast if those if, if it's not competing with cars on the road. Mm. Right. Yeah, Janet Satakan is, is a huge proponent of this idea. I know yeah. talking her. Yeah, a lot yeah, about that, that she and I were of course colleagues in the Bloomer yeah. administration. Yeah. You know see because Jeanette yeah. what Jeanette understands is 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 the when you ban private cars from the central business district, it has a huge knock-on effect for a hundred miles outside of that central business district. Because that central business district is what's generating the majority of the private car demand. So you take that demand away, and all of a sudden it erases a huge number of cars on the road all over an enormous region. And and that's what it's hard for people to imagine, I think. Yeah. I think you you do a really good job of, of bringing people's, um, giving visuals that people can kind of hold on to and, and they can get a sense of what this might feel like to eat on the street and not have, you know, tons of cars honking their horns and, and disrupting their dinner, um, which is one of the worst parts about having a, like a meal on the sidewalk in, in a place like New York. Um, uh, part of this conversation is about street equity. And you talk about street equity and you know, silent majority that's not really being represented properly. Can you talk a little bit more about that before we get on to the next topic? Sure. Well, it's fairly straightforward. I mean, the majority of city dwellers in most big cities don't own cars. Uh, only about one eighth of New Yorker of, of New Yorkers own a private car, and so that seven eighth has no or very little political representation in terms of how the major public space of their city, the streets, are used. And so the street equity conversation centers on that political reality, as well as just the fact that, again, it's a spatial thing. If you look at 50 people in 50 cars versus 50 people on a large bus, the amount of space they take up is enormously different. And we have some diagrams that, that show that. The other thing about equity, you know, and I'm glad you mentioned the visuals, because I think as designers, one of the key things we can do is help people visualize ideas that are really hard to otherwise grasp. Um, we work really hard in those visuals for the times to, to not connote some twee, bougie fantasy of what the city can be, but really working with like the grit and reality of New York City, the garbage cans, the, you know, like not just dealing with rich parts of the city, but all parts of the city, rich and poor. Um, dealing with existing street furniture typologies, because that all connotes equity too. It's about, you know, there's too many of these fantasies that are really driven by a kind of upper middle class that wants to graph their sensibility onto what a city is or should be. And so we work really hard to avoid that. Yeah. And We've talked a lot about New York, and I think we both know it really well. So um, let's talk more about something I don't know as well, because I only lived there for like six months in my life. It's California. And you 
recently commented about degrowth uh, and California wildfires, and you talk a lot about um, sprawl, I think, in this conversation. And I love this. I think you said it, and it's it's obviously it's a Henry David Thoreau. If you love nature, you like stay away from it, or you shouldn't live in it. Um, and you say this to support the claim that cities are not responsible for climate change, but sprawl is. And um, what do you see as being effective in disincentivizing sprawl and keeping people in the heart of cities? Um, I think it's carrot and stick. Um, the stick has to be regulatory. And the way in which it's regulatory is that people have to pay for the negative externalities of their behavior, which is a fancy way of saying that, you know, when someone pollutes a river, we expect them to pay for the cleanup of it. So if someone's polluting our atmosphere by living in a McMansion and owning four Escalades and driving to work every day, they should be taxed extraordinarily heavily for it. Gas taxes, real estate taxes, highway tolls. It should be extraordinarily expensive to live in a sprawling lifestyle. And all of that is not some outsized taxation. It's basically to pay for the pain they're causing the world. Um, so that's the stick aspect. Um, and of course, related to that is all sorts of regulatory stuff about zoning, about, you know, allowing multifamily housing around transportation and all of those kinds of things. Um, and then there's the, um, the flip side, the carrot, which is to say, well, if you don't let, I mean, do you really want to spend your day, you know, an hour and a half each direction in a traffic jam? Right. So the quality of life argument that I can I can give you the most valuable thing that human beings have, which is time. You know, I can give you time back with your family, with your friends to exercise, to read, to eat well, to, you know. So, so I really think that carrot stick balance is really important uh, in how we talk about this. Do you think this is a national conversation that needs to be had? Like, do we need an urbanist for president or, or is this uh, going to continue <laughs> it's really, to happen it's really, at the local level? It's a really interesting question. You know, it's interesting. I, I do think Joe Biden gets it because um, he, he talks about infrastructure more than I think most candidates do. Um, but um, Look, I, I am a big believer in cities having a lot of local autonomy and local control and especially strong mayors. I think mayors are the most important political force in the world right now in terms of climate change and social equity. Um, they, they, they can work, they can, you know, they can work with a lot more alacrity and, and nimbleness than federal governments can. Um, and so, you know, I'm just a big believer in mayors. Um, you look at what Anne Hidalgo is doing in Paris. It's, it's extraordinary work. Um, it would be nice to have an urbanist as president. But, you know, this also for the United States, look, Jefferson was a deeply anti-urban man. Uh, and so much of the founding documents of the United States are based on a, on a, on a kind of vicious anti-urbanism. The Electoral College, you know, we're going to have a situation in this country in the not too distant future where 30 senators are going to represent 70% of the population. Um, that's a recipe for disaster. Um, and so, 
we do need federal leadership on all of this to help unwind these things that the founding fathers either had extraordinary bias about because they wanted to keep the slave trade and their version of agriculture available to them, or just didn't understand what was going to happen in the future. I kind of want, I definitely want an urbanist for president in, in the near future. And I think Joe Biden does get it. And a lot of the work he did with Obama was on the issues that we care so much about. Um, I, I almost want there to be a president that, that understands it, but doesn't talk too much about it and just does it quietly. <laughs> like, yeah, right. That, like has been done right. in Copenhagen since happen. the and 1970s. And it could, happen, it could happen the first time we elect a mayor as president. Yeah, you know, and we had a couple in the running this time. Um, that'll be an interesting moment if we can get a mayor to the White House. Yeah, I think Mayor Pete is is our guy uh, in the future. Um, we talked a lot with one of his advisors, uh, Christopher Caldwell, and and um, he's doing a lot of these things in West Sacramento, which isn't too far from you. So I, I think you're right. Like a, a mayor in the White House will do it all a, a lot of good to to green and improve our lives in cities. The, the, um, the wildfires have been dramatic. <laughs> it's like, I don't know what to talk about. What's been more dramatic in the last like six to 12 months, but in California, like from afar, this seems really dramatic. It's upended a lot of my friends' lives. Uh, the story you told earlier has happened to at least three of my friends. They've been evacuated from either their homes or, you know, someplace they were staying for the weekend. Yeah, we were evacuated uh, from a hotel. It was really scary, actually. Yeah, a friend of mine had the same situation. And I'm seeing my friends send me photographs. You know, the sky is orange over San Francisco. Yeah. LA. It's yep. like there's a kind of apocalyptic scenes. Um, and in this, like, analysis, and you've talked about degrowth um, as something that California must do altogether. What does degrowth mean? Can you tell, tell everybody about that? I'm not sure degrowth is what I mean as much as just um, the right kind of growth. I mean, California has to grow. It's just that it has to grow in multifamily housing and its city is not in sprawl. Um, you know, it's funny. Uh, my wife isn't from here and we were just like walking around San Francisco and she was just flabbergasted how low rise it is. Um, you know, it's just the entire Bay area, you know, here in Berkeley, like it's extraordinary how low rise most of, of California is. And it's again, cause it was all, it's all, it's all built around the suspended delete, the suspended disbelief of the automobile. And so it just, you know, California has a huge amount of income and growth. And again, it goes back to that larger point I was trying to make about 10 billion people by 2100. All of our cities are going to grow. All of our urban areas are going to grow. It's just the question is going to be how they're going to grow and the qualities with which they grow, which is what my TED talk is about, right? It's about quality. And so, you know, no, I never argue for degrowth per se. It's just I argue against sprawl because it's obviously – Again, like if 10 billion people try to live that way, we're screwed. Uh, we have like 10 minutes left, Fishan. And, and so I've got a couple of questions like that our audience submitted before this, because I think a lot of people were excited that you're coming on. Um, uh, a lot of them we touched on about the Carlos Manhattan and other climate change issues. Um, but one in inequality, maybe we can touch on um, before I open it to you to talk about things that you know, you'd like to, to share with us. Um, how are you incorporating the female experience into urban design? That's a question from one of our listeners. 
That's a great question. Um, and I think the, the, the clear answer is ask females, right? Um, you know, uh, Ruchika Modi is the managing principal of my office. Um, I work with women all the time. Berkeley is practically led by women. Uh, well, it is. I mean, the campus is actually read, led by Carol Chris. Um, you know, to me, there is, this is similar to the race uh, kind of questions that we have in our society today. I, I think a lot of um, dominant culture in the form of single white men, what they're trying to do right now is maintain their dominance by saying, well, you know, we're just going to hear a bunch of voices. And I actually think that's not the answer. The answer is sometimes you got to step aside and let other people lead. Right. And so that's why I've been promoting women in, you know, my practice and in our, you know, the three department chairs of my college are all women. Um, it, 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 and, and, and the harder part, frankly, is around race, because in our field, you know, only two percent of licensed um, architects in the United States are African-American. And so you can't just read a bunch of books and somehow substitute for that experience, right? It means that folks who are marginalized have to lead and people who have been leading have to step aside, um, which is a big statement and very hard for a lot of people to swallow. Um, but it's just the reality. So one, one thing we're doing in particular is I mentioned the two co-founders of my college, um, uh, uh, William Worcester, I'm the William Worcester Dean, right, as you said in my intro, and uh, his spouse, Catherine Bauer Worcester, who is arguably the more important person between the two. Um, Catherine Bauer uh, wrote the National Housing Act for FDR. She was a vehement anti-racist um, well before her time. Uh, she advised five presidents uh, and basically invented public housing in the United States. She's, in my mind, way more important than Jane Jacobs, and yet most people haven't heard of her. And so we have this whole thing called the Bauer Worcester Initiative going on right now in our college about, you know, have, help, helping people understand her history, but also understanding why what she spoke about was so relevant to the people of our day. And, you know, she understood things about, she, you know, she wrote about, you know, people's domestic lives and, you know, how families you know, interacted in housing that I think men wouldn't have written about during that time. So I, I just think it's, it's, it's about putting those perspectives into leadership. And how do you, what kind of actionable measures can be taken now? Like, um, are, are you doing the things you've done in your practice are, are admirable, of course, and in, in uh, academia also, um, you're setting an example for the rest of us. Anything else that can be done by anyone out there um, that, that can at least lead to more equitable kind of representation well, at the head? I would just organize, I, I would just ask people to think about how to organize large scale action, right? Because I think too much of environmentalism or racial consciousness has turned into this like personal mission. It's what light bulb I use and you know, what food I eat and what books I read. And if 
people like that's fine, but like people can't imagine that that's going to have a scalar impact, right? And so, what's really important for especially young activists to do is to figure out how to organize and push governments, push society, push academia, push our institutions towards reform. And it's just it's it's a long, hard slog, and a lot of these things do not have binary answers it means talking to people who don't agree with you hearing out their perspectives and then pushing for the change you believe in and it's just it's not easy it's a lifetime's work and it's an asymptote you're never going to get it right um and so that's a lot that's a hard thing to stomach but i think it's critically important to understand yeah it's it's in fact it's a nice way to kind of wrap up. It's it's the whole reason that I, that I founded Recite was to bring people together to talk about things they might not necessarily want to talk about, um, but those are the issues and those are the frictions that will help us develop a better city. And in that, um, what would you like to talk about? There's only a couple minutes left. Is there something that I missed or that uh, that's kind of burning for you? Uh, maybe you know, is any of this influenced by your current move, your your recent move to California? Uh, well, I guess, I think maybe the only thing we haven't talked about that much is design itself. And design as a, as a pedagogy, as an ethos, uh, is undergoing huge change. We're having conversations about how racialized the teaching of design is, um, how design actually directly addresses climate change beyond kind of the tropes of green buildings and, and, and fluorescent light bulbs. And, you know, um, I really believe that design is a huge part of this mix because you can't talk about fighting sprawl and transit-oriented density and all of these things, again, without quality uh, and without creating a sense of belonging for people. I think so much of what gets built around the world is um, this kind of banal, homogenous stuff that makes people reject density and reject urbanity. Um, and I think designers have a very, very, um, disciplinary specific fight on their hands, uh, having to do with creating again, not just quality, but how one creates, uh, um, you know, an architecture of belonging. Um, and so that's something I'm focused on. I don't have any clear answers yet. Again, I think it's a life's work. But it's something that like I'm focused on in my next book and um, we're focused on the practice. And, you know, to me, it's an interesting question mark to kind of end the conversation with. Yeah. At what scale does does um, can design really impact us? Because this, I think getting back to the original proposal we talked about, oftentimes when we heard about these kinds of proposals from Enrique Penulosa or others, um, that wanted to see kind of more green streets or cycling streets in, in large cities. It was it was like a really kind of planned discussion, and it didn't really show us what the city might look like. And and I think uh, maybe that's what you're getting at is that if if um, we're going to step into this conversation as designers as architects, uh, it needs to have a physicality that that resonates with people that has uh, elicits emotion and that maybe can help drive the conversation. Is that design's role maybe? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, and, and design I think is very relevant to that. And I think 
designers and you know whether it's landscape architecture or architecture um you know we've been struggling for relevance for a long time and i think this could be our moment thank you so much vishan um hang in there i know that uh you have uh, added complications uh, being the dean of a school that's now remote learning and of course dealing with the wildfires while we're dealing with everything else so um, keep your head up and stay positive and keep inspiring us so thanks for joining us Thanks. Really appreciate it. Okay. Take care. Talk soon. Good. Bye-bye. That was Vishan Chakrabadi with Martin Berry for Design in the City. If you are interested in some of the projects we've discussed today or want to learn more about Vishan and his work, All relevant links can be found in this show's description. Thank you for joining. This podcast is brought to you by Recite, the global nonprofit connecting people and ideas to improve the urban environment. It was recorded at the WeWork offices in Prague with support from the city of Prague. You can find more talks, stories, and podcasts at recite.org or become involved with the Recite community through our various social channels. All links and info you need can be found in this show's description. This podcast was produced by myself, Alexandra Siebenthal, with support from Martin Berry, Radhika Andrachkova, Elizabeth Mills, and Elizabeth Novacek, and edited by Little Big Studio. Mm-hmm.